This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker and I'm joined by Helena, aka No Justice MTG, here on YouTube. Thank you for joining us again, Helena. Thank you for the invite. Wish I was in better circumstances, but we will uh, be able to report as we always do. Um, coming up later tonight, Suella Braverman has declared war on homeless people sleeping in tents. Is there, She cannot go any lower, right? More on the situation facing journalists attempting to cover the war in Gaza. And George Osborne has again revealed the reality of British politics. Stay tuned for all of that. Let me know your thoughts on the YouTube Super Chat. And you can also tweet at me on the hashtag Navara Live. First story. The death toll from Israel's war on Gaza has exceeded 10,000 in less than four weeks. That's according to the Gazan Health Ministry, who say more than 4,000 of the dead are children. According to leaks from the Israeli military, they think it could already be as high as 20,000 people killed in Gaza. Now, that would be around 1% of Gaza's population killed in four weeks. Now, it is a death toll that makes talk of genocide begin to seem all too real. And as we've discussed on this show, the language of genocide has been something ever-present from Israel's political establishment. Yet this weekend we found out there are at least some statements that go too far, even for Netanyahu. Amikai Eliyahu, Israel's heritage minister, has been suspended from cabinet after telling a radio host that using a nuclear bomb against Gazans was an option. That's right, a nuclear bomb on a population of 2.2 million people, half of them children. Now, Israel's Western fans were relieved that Eliyahu was suspended from cabinet. But my suspicion here is that his suspension had less to do with the number of Gazans he'd happily kill and more to do with Eliyahu breaking Israel's long-standing policy of deliberate ambiguity when it comes to whether or not Israel actually have nuclear weapons. They've been known to have them since the 1960s, but have never admitted that publicly. Of course, minus the nuclear threats, Eliyahu had already been sounding pretty genocidal without facing any consequences. Last week, he posted this on Facebook. North of the Strip, beautiful as ever, blown up and flatten everything. Simply a delight for the eyes. We need to talk about the day after. In my spirit's eye, we give out plots to all those who have fought for Gaza over the years and to the evicted from Gush Katif, um, including... And then we've got this picture of... Um, or, or Gush Katif Inc., um, so he's saying flatten everything and essentially take it over for, for Israel. Now, that post didn't get Eliyahu into trouble, proving that open support for genocide is fine in Israel's government, so long as it's non-nuclear. And this weekend, there was one more extremist voice that got disowned. Rabbi Amakai Friedman told young soldiers that if it weren't for the Israeli casualties and hostages, the last four weeks would have been the greatest month of his life. He went on to say this. േ േ േ േ േ േ േ േ േ േ േ േ േ േ േ േ േ േ േ േ േ േ േ േ േ േ േ േ േ േ േ േ േ േ േ േ േ േ േ േ േ േ േ േ േ േ േ േ േ േ
So the rabbi said to cheers from soldiers, this land is ours. And he wasn't just talking about Gaza, but also Lebanon. He also said, we will destroy everyone. Now that video went viral and the IDF have taken action saying this. The conduct of the officer, as seen in the video, does not align with the military's values and directives. The officer was summoned for a clarification meeting with his commanders and will be handled accordingly. The military will not permit this type of unacceptable discourse among its ranks in routine times or in wartime. Again, my suspicion here isn't so much that the rabbi was summoned for using genocidal language, but this time because he also applied that to Lebanon. Right? So we've heard lots of genocidal language from Israeli politicians, but we have a red line here, either nuking Gaza, that's beyond the pale, and annexing Lebanon. Everything short of that, though, seems okay. And the plan to empty Gaza of the 2.2 million Palestinians who live there is a policy that goes right to the top of Israeli politics. Soon after the 7th of October, the Ministry of Information produced a policy document recommending Israel expel all Palestinians from Gaza. And Netanyahu himself has lobbied European leaders to pressure Egypt into accepting millions of Gazan refugees. This again should be no surprise. Netanyahu has for a long time longed to rid Palestine of the Palestinians. In 1979, Max Hastings wrote a book about Benjamin Netanyahu's older brother, Yoni. That book included this passage. At Bibi Netanyahu's dinner table in Jerusalem, I listened with crawling dismay to Bibi talking about the future of his country. In the next war, if we do it right, we'll have a chance to get all the Arabs out, he said. We can clear the West Bank, sort out Jerusalem. He joked about the Golani Brigade, the Israeli infantry force in which so many men were North African or Yemenite Jews. They're okay as long as they're led by white officers, he grinned. This is from Netanyahu's mouth. Right? He wanted to clear all of Palestine of the Palestinians. However, many politicians and pundits in the West seem happy to ignore Israel's stated intentions, preferring to describe the war on Gaza as simply a fight against terrorism. But not everyone is towing that line. Charles Freeman is a former US ambassador to Saudi Arabia who put Israel's intentions in stark terms. As I said, this is not a war with Hamas. It is a, a war of annihilation aimed at Palestinians in Gaza. Uh, there are two aspects to this, two objectives. One is to expel Palestinians. There's been quite an effort made to get the Egyptians, with American support apparently, to take them into the Sinai, um, which has failed because uh, Egypt uh, does not uh, want uh, a troublesome population in Sinai. It already has enough trouble there. Uh, the other objective, if they can't be expelled, uh, they will be murdered. Uh, and so uh, what we are seeing is uh, very indiscriminate bombing, you know, killing hundreds in order to aim at one Hamas figure whose whereabouts they have identified. Uh, it is ruthless. Um, it is a grotesque uh, crime against humanity. And uh, it is costing Israel I believe, uh, and the United States, which backs Israel in this, a great deal internationally. So the Gazans will either be expelled or they'll be murdered. Now, that analysis might sound very extreme, but given all we've shown you, it doesn't sound completely unrealistic. Which leads to the question, can anything or anyone stop Netanyahu carrying out a genocide in Gaza? As is often mentioned, Netanyahu's government is weak and he won't be in power forever. So that could be a silver lining. 
However, it's unclear exactly what relief that should provide, as the alternative within Israel doesn't seem much better. Ram Ben Barak is a former deputy director of Mossad and former director general of the Ministry of Intelligence Services. He's currently a member of the Knesset with the Yesh Atid party, which is part of the centrist and supposedly liberal opposition to Netanyahu. Let's distribute 2.5 million Gazans all over the world, 100 countries, each takes 25,000. That's humane and needs to be done. So he's talking about the mass expulsion of 2.5 million people. That's humane, apparently, and needs to be done. Again, that man was from the supposedly liberal opposition to Netanyahu. So when people tell you, oh, it's Netanyahu, it's, it's not Israel, it's just this extremist guy in charge, talk about him like he's Donald Trump. Well, the opposition really isn't much better. The Labour Party, so that is the party which you know, was the, was the major establishment party in Israel for a very long time, historically back to two-state solution. That party currently only has four out of the 120 seats in the Knesset. So while liberal Zionists might be reluctant to admit it, Israeli politics now pits the extreme right against the extreme right, at least when it comes to their stance with respect to Palestinians. So if there is little hope within Israel, could opposition come from outside the country? Could international actors moderate Israel's actions? Well, the most significant player here would be Joe Biden, but he's pleading impotence. The Washington Post reports this. Administration officials say Israel's counterattack against Hamas has been too severe, too costly in civilian casualties, and lacking a coherent endgame. But they are unable to exert significant influence on America's closest ally in the Middle East to change its course. Now, they go on to say this. The Biden administration urged Israel against a ground invasion, privately asked it to consider proportionality in its attacks, advocated a higher priority on avoiding civilian deaths, and called for a humanitarian pause, only for Israeli officials to dismiss or reject all of those suggestions. Now, the article is somewhat odd, though, because while all these officials suggest the US is unable to properly influence Israel, it also un seems unclear whether they actually want to. So the Washington Post writes this, administration officials and advisors say the levers the United States theoretically has over Israel, such as conditioning military aid on making the military campaign more targeted, are non-starters. Partly because they would be so politically unpopular in any administration, and partly because aides say Biden himself has a personal attachment to Israel. So the USA is unable to influence Israel, but mainly because the president doesn't actually want to. That is not a story that inspires much confidence that this really is going to be a regime or administration in America that limits the damage done by Netanyahu. Um, now, to talk about the impact international actors could have on Israeli actions and what impact they might actually want, I'm joined by David Waring. David is lecturer in international relations at the University of Sussex and an expert on UK foreign relations in the Middle East. Um, thank you for joining us. And first off, do you take seriously... Um, the idea that Israel wants to commit genocide here, wants to commit a second Nakba, wants to expel um, all of the citizens of Gaza from their homes. Well, Palestinians have always told us is that Nakba is an ongoing process, right? Um, and we've definitely seen, it, um, seen that process of 
of dispossession accelerating in the last few weeks. We've seen forced displacement of huge numbers of Palestinians within Gaza. Uh, we're seeing parallel to that in the West Bank, and this was happening before 7th of October, um, the sort of hounding of Palestinian communities, hounding of Palestinians out of their communities by settlers with the Israeli uh, military looking on. So it's an ongoing process, and it's one that's accelerating. Um, in terms of a dramatic acceleration of the kind you've been talking about in the show up till now, um, I mean, there are these, these two competing influences or impulses, I guess. Um, there's the kind of standard logic within the Israeli polity, which is maximum amount of land, minimum amount of Palestinians, you know, and driving for that. But on the other side, there's what can Israel get away with internationally? And I think this is really important to stress that isn't, Israel is far more powerful. This is quite a small country compared to the rest of the world. Small population, you know, medium-sized economy, and it relies on big countries to support it and always has done militarily, politically, diplomatically. Um, and so, you know, there, there's a point at which, by which, up to which you can't go without having severe pushback from your backers. And that's probably the, you know, to the extent that a, NAC, a second Nakba of the kind you've described doesn't happen, it would be because of that. But obviously, you know, civil society in the West needs to give a push to Western governments to prevent that from happening. And and so if they wanted to, who are we talking about here? What what countries could genuinely influence Israel in this war? Is it is it basically just the United States and America, or are there smaller players that can have an impact here as well? It's the US and Europe, right? I mean, again, you know, as a population of Israel is like a population of six million. It's got a GDP which is like something like twenty something in the world. I mean, most European countries are bigger and more powerful than that. Put aside the United States, and the United States is the there's never been a superpower like the United States in world history. So the idea that these big states can't influence Israel and can't put significant pressure on Israel is just, you know, it's not credible. It's not credible for a minute. And there's all sorts of pressure that they can put on, that they don't try to put on, but which they could put on, which they would instantly, you know, recognise, powers they would instantly recognise if we were talking about a geopolitical opponent of the West, right? When Russia does something or where Iran does something, the whole toolkit of pressure comes out, you know, because people know what it is. Um, there's economic sanctions you can place, there's halting military transfers, arms transfers, halting military cooperation, there's um, diplomatic pressure you can put on, you can pass a Security Council resolution. Um, there's Just removing the political cover, just removing this disingenuous framing that Israel's doing nothing more than defending itself, and we know it's doing far, far more than that, it's gone well beyond the parameters of, of legitimate self-defense, just calling out these crimes, right? The collective punishment of the people of Gaza, the indiscriminate bombing, um, citing what um, UN experts and uh, academic experts have, have have warned this this potential um, genocide that could start to take place if it's not already happening. Western governments can talk about all of that and they, they can talk and they can act and they know it as well. And it's going to, what it's going to take, as I say, is Western civil society to incentivize our governments to place that pressure on Israel. And once that pressure is placed on Israel, you'll see Israel move quite quickly, I suspect. 
Yeah, I mean, it is very frustrating, isn't it, what, what pressure means in different contexts. So when people talk about pressuring the Russian government, they say, yeah, we'll use sanctions, we'll send loads of military aid to Ukraine. That's what will, will, will change Putin's sort of um, structure of incentives. When we talk about Israel, we say, oh, we'll, we'll still send them loads of weapons, we'll still have very friendly economic relations with them, but we'll ask them very nicely, could you consider not genociding the Palestinian people? Could you consider a two-state solution? And, and, and when it comes to Israel, we, we have to give them material and military support. But at the end of the day, we'll ask nicely at the end of the meeting, oh, by the way, would you mind not killing loads of innocent people? And would you mind um, agreeing to some kind of political solution to this? I find it incredibly, incredibly frustrating. Um, let's talk about the United States. I mean, they're trying to say, because Biden clearly is a little bit um, you know, worried about what his support for Israel is, is um, doing to his relations you know, to other countries um, in the Arab world and also to parts of the Democrat base. And he is saying, well, look, you know, it might seem like I'm giving Israel all of this support, but actually the reason I'm giving Israel all this support is so they then um, trust me behind the scenes when I ask them to to be a little bit less genocidal, you know, when I ask them to target their weapons a little bit more than they're currently doing. What do you make of that? What do you make of sort of Joe Biden specifically in this conflict? Um, yeah, I mean, th this kind of this line is something you get used to. If you follow Western foreign relations in the Middle East, this line is something you get used to after a while. The call quiet diplomacy, we mustn't do megaphone diplomacy, that's very crude, people won't listen to us. Um, you know, you hear it time and again, um, some of your viewers will know I'm someone who follows Western foreign relations with regard to Saudi Arabia. I've been following this war that the Saudis have been waging in Yemen. Uh, for seven or eight years, indiscriminate bombing of Yemenis, blockading of Yemen. It's not dissimilar to the tactics that Israel have used with respect to Gaza. And you hear the same stories, right? You know, we've got to stay close to the Saudis um, to influence them. Um, but you don't, you see no evidence of this influence that is supposedly being wielded. And, you know, it's ignoring the fact that actually there's a huge amount of influence that could be wielded if um you know if the, if these states if these western states really wanted to wield it um i mean it's it's really a disingenuous framing it presents western governments presenting themselves as kind of positive, you know restraining influences trying to do the right thing um it, it's much better and more accurate i would say to look at these western powers the us and europe in these situations as enablers of these governments enablers of these states that are committing these war crimes um you know, they're helping them to do it and also perhaps thinking about the domestic political costs to themselves and thinking of PR lines that they can put out to, to damp down those political costs. Um, perhaps there's a, there's a limit to which they would be happy for their allies to go, a limit beyond which they don't want them to go, again, because of the political cost domestically. Um, but ultimately, as I say, they're, they're not restraining influences, generally speaking. They're enablers of these regimes. And, you know, we have to, to we have to recognise it as such. By the way, just going back to the last question, you know, we talk about all these um, forms of pressure that are put on Western opponents. I mean, let's face it, if it was a if it was a government like Syria, for example, or Iran, or any geopolitical opponent of the West who is doing to a population what the Israelis are doing to the Palestinians now, there would be Western politicians and Western commentators absolutely baying for military in in intervention. They would be absolutely demanding that very loudly. We'll be having a discussion now 
in Western political discourse about the responsibility to protect, about our moral responsibilities to prevent, you know, um, atrocities, to prevent genocide. That's what the discourse will be like. It's really revealing that we're hearing something completely different now. It tells you a lot, I think, about both this situation and those other situations. If it was a, another country that wasn't an ally, it's not that we would be talking about... So at the moment, we provide military aid to Israel. So the, the, the lowest common denominator demand is stop giving them the weapons to do this. If it were, as you say, sort of Iran, we'd be saying, well, we need a no-fly zone. We need to shoot their planes out of the sky and then let's do regime change at the same time. So like complete opposite ends of the spectrum. I mean, going back to the the quiet diplomacy example as well, I can imagine you know, what, what Western governments and Western journalists would say if, if Xi Jinping stood up and said, oh, I'm going to give... Um, billions of dollars worth of military aid to Vladimir Putin, but I'm actually doing this to benefit the Ukrainians because um, I'm hoping it will will make Putin target his weapons a bit more. And then at the end of the meeting, we're going to say, oh, also, why don't you make peace with the Ukrainians as well? You know, we, we would laugh them out of the room. Like that would be, if anyone tried to defend that position, you would get called the tankiest stooge in the country, right? But when it comes to Israel, that is the acceptable and sort of the the received wisdom. Oh, of course we have to provide them with aid. Even David Lammy wrote a sort of comment piece sort of saying, oh, what we will do is essentially, we're not going to call for a ceasefire. We're going to give Israel everything they want, but we'll also ask for a two-state solution. It's, it's just complete, complete nonsense. Um, I suppose we talked about Western governments and, and, and what they might be doing here. Um, what about countries who, you know, aren't Israel's allies? Um, and I suppose specifically I'm thinking here about Iran. Is it possible that they could open up a front with with Israel? Is there sort of, a red line that if Israel crossed, um, we might see Hezbollah, for example, in, in Lebanon firing rockets into Israel, or we might see you know, Iran intervene in, in, in some other way. Is, is that to, agree, to a degree providing some limit to what Israel feels it's able to do? Yeah, um, I'm a bit unsure about this. I mean, for all the big talk you hear from people like um, Hassan Nasrallah, I mean, the reality is, I mean, Lebanon's been going through a four-year economic meltdown. Um, I, I really suspect that they don't want to get involved um, to anything like it. The extent that Israel and, and Hezbollah fought in 2006, which was absolutely devastating for Lebanon. Um, I mean, the Israelis really pulverised large swathes of Lebanon, and I'm not sure that Hezbollah want to get involved in that. I'm not sure that Iran would want to get involved in a conflict like that for, for all the big talk we hear from them. Um, it, it, the thing about a conflict is people have their big plans and they have their strategies, but violence is almost like a force of nature. It can take on a life of its own. And there's always a danger with conflicts that they can escalate in a way that none of the you know, none of the parties involved really envisaged at the time. You know, you don't know whether a certain action taken by one party or another can be misconstrued by another party, and that triggers their red lights. Um, I expect the kind of red lines for the likes of Hezbollah and Iran might be, um, you know, real mass expulsions out of Gaza. I think at that point they may believe, well, it's going to damage our credibility if we don't respond to this in some way. Um, we'll look like paper tigers if we don't respond to this in some way. Um, but, you know, I mean... It, as I say, I, I think these states want to stay out of it. And also, I think the Americans want them to stay out of it. I think the Americans want to contain this within Gaza. And there'll be a lot of pressure from the Americans who, as we've said, will apply pressure when they want to. I think there'll be a lot of pressure from the Americans to say to the Israelis, 
you make sure this doesn't escalate. And of course, they're they're moving militarily the Americans into the region to ensure there isn't an escalation of that kind. And let's finish on um, what is your, you know, your specific area of expertise, which is Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states. You've written books um, on on those. Um, one explanation as to why Hamas launched the attack, which they did on the seventh October, was to interrupt um, Saudi Arabia normalizing relations with with Israel. Um, to what extent has has that happened? You know, is normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel now out of the question? And if not, is this something that could be you know, influencing what Israel does and doesn't do? Do they do they not want to go so far in this war that a normalization deal with Saudi Arabia is just off the cards for a generation? Do they think if they, if they behave a bit more moderately, then maybe this this Saudi deal can, can, can be back on the cards? Yeah, this is all in the calculation, I think, for, for all of these states. This, these normalization deals, um, really important to, to the Saudis, the Emiratis, um, you know, really important to Israel as well. Um, and, and they'll be weighing all this up. I mean, look, you have to, you have to remember, give it, give it the hist- bit of the historical context. Um, the Saudis, together with the rest of the Arab League, offered Israel uh, normalization 20 years ago, 2002, uh, the Arab Peace Plan, which basically said to Israel, look, you withdraw to within your legal borders, 1967 borders, you offer some kind of just solution for the Palestinian refugees, and we'll give you normalization. And this is before Hamas took control of Gaza, by the way. So the Palestinians were represented by the Palestinian Authority. And they said, yeah, we sign up to this too, you know, recognition in return for full withdrawal to the 67 borders, justice for the Palestinians. And of course, Israelis rejected this out of hand. And the Americans didn't put any pressure on Israelis to sign up to it. Now, what's different, I guess, this, so what's significant about normalization now is that it's not coming with that condition. So what's happening is the Americans, as the kind of brokers of normalization, together with the Saudis, together with the Emiratis, together with the Israelis, are basically removing the Palestinian condition out of the equation and saying we're just going to have normalization anyway. It's not conditional on Palestinian self-determination. It's not conditional conditional on a resolution. Um, We'll give the Palestinians a little something but basically we're going ahead without them. So this was the Americans trying to cut the Palestinians out and the others trying to cut the Palestinians out. They all thought they could get away with it. And what they've discovered in the last few weeks is that the Palestinian issue actually isn't going to go away. Now, from here on, I struggle to see how normalisation can continue on anything like the timetable they wanted it to. And the other thing that could enter the equation from the Saudis' point of view if this goes on much longer, if this potential genocide, whatever you want to call it, certainly a bloodbath, starts to escalate beyond what we've already seen, I think you could well see civil unrest, maybe in Saudi Arabia or maybe in countries that Saudi Arabia cares about, like Bahrain, like Egypt, threatening regimes that the Saudis care about in strategic terms. That's going to push on the, on the Saudis' calculations as well. And what all of this speaks to is the reason why the Americans and the British oppose democracy in the Middle East. They want to keep those Arab populations quiet. They want to keep them out of the political equation because normalization could never happen if these um, if these states were democratically accountable. Um, so again, this, you know, this whole situation, I think it reveals a lot about how power works in the Middle East and it reveals a lot about how the Western states operate in the Middle East as well. Let's go on to our next story. Information from Gaza is increasingly hard to come by. 
Israel periodically cuts the internet connection in the Strip. Israel's airstrikes keep killing Palestinian journalists on the ground. And international journalists haven't been allowed by Israel to enter Gaza. That is, unless those journalists let Israel control exactly what they say. This clip is from CNN. Yesterday, CNN's Jeremy Diamond went into Gaza on an IDF embed. I should note that journalists embedded with the IDF in Gaza operate under the observation of Israeli commanders in the field and are not permitted to move unaccompanied within the Gaza Strip. As a condition to enter Gaza under IDF escort, outlets have to submit all materials and footage to the Israeli military for review prior to publication. CNN has agreed to these terms in order to provide a limited window into Israel's operations in Gaza. So the host, Farid Zakaria, said there, as a condition to enter Gaza under IDF air support, outlets have to submit all materials and footage to the Israeli military for review prior to publication. CNN has agreed to these terms. Now, it just so happens that Zakaria is actually one of the better TV journalists in, in the US. And you can say, to his credit, at least he's admitting that they're doing embedded journalism, which is not going to tell us the truth. But you have to ask, why do it in the first place, right? If you can't be critical about the key protagonist in the war because you have to show them all your footage, how are you not just doing propaganda? It's also very, very grim um, when you consider what independent journalists in Gaza are experiencing. And the message basically is to journalists here, either you let Israel tell you what you can say or you get killed. 36 journalists have already been killed in Gaza. One of them was Mohammed Abu Hattab, who was killed along with 11 members of his family members in Khan Yunis. Here's how his colleagues reported that dreadful news. Other journalists have continued working despite having their families wiped out. Al Jazeera's Gaza Bureau chief, Wael Dadua, lost his wife, son, daughter and other relatives to an Israeli airstrike. He found out about their deaths when they were brought into a hospital he was reporting from. 24 hours later, he was back reporting for Al Jazeera. كان مهما بالنسبة لنا لكن رأينا أنه من الواجب 
أن نعود سريعا رغم كل شيء فالساحة والمحاور ما زالت تشتعل كما ترون بالغارات وبالقصف المدفعي والتطورات متلاحقة فرأيت أن من واجبي رغم الوجع ورغم الجرح النازف أن أعود سريعا وألتقيكم من خلال عدسة الكاميرا عبر مواقع التواصل يعطيكم العافية وأسألكم الدعاء دائما That is much braver than being a journalist embedded with the IDF. Navarra Media also has this report on journalists working in Gaza. Daisy Schofield spoke to some who told her they believe journalists are being deliberately targeted by the IDF. A photojournalist called Mohammed Alalul told her this. Journalistic work is very dangerous as the Israeli occupation targets journalists everywhere. There is no protection for Palestinian journalists. Now, that article was published on Friday. Two days later, Daisy Schofield tweeted this. The Palestinian journalist, Mohammed Alalul, who I spoke to for this Navarra Media article, lost four of his children in an Israeli airstrike on Sunday, beyond devastating news. Now, I, I, I just think that really sort of speaks to the tempo of this war. You know, everyone who is commenting on, on this war, who has friends and family in Gaza, every night they don't know if they're about to be killed. You, you, you have someone who's interviewed on Saturday and they die on Sunday, interviewed on Friday, their family are all dead by Monday, right? The extent of death and suffering and loss in Gaza is to such an extreme degree right now that anyone we hear from in Gaza you know, there seems to be a pretty large chance they're not going to make it two more weeks, right? And and then to have a government saying this is this is targeted bombing. Well, if it's targeting, you if it's targeted, you're clearly targeting journalists, right? So what's worse, it's indiscriminate or you're targeting journalists? It's one of those two things. Um, Helena, what do you make of this contrast between, I suppose, CNN putting its embedded journalists under the protection of the IDF and then letting the IDF control what they say, or at least control what they can and can't say, so they'll be able to veto stuff. And then the independent Gazan journalists who are risking their lives every day um, and their families' lives every day. I mean, I think what we learned from the Ukraine conflict was that we are truly now in the information age war, where with the free flow of information, given how places like, for example, news networks can have their clips on social media go viral instantly, Gaining control over the narrative is incredibly important if you're a powerful state doing something that is in no way defensible. Right? We saw this in the way that, although Putin is an enemy of the West, would use this kind of non-linear narrative, the kind of Vladislav Surkov style, um, engaging in information war to try and confuse people as to the reality of the conflict in Ukraine. Because Israel is an ally of the West, they need to ensure that the information that is being consumed fits the narrative, a narrative in which everything that they are doing is justified but regrettable, rather than indeed completely unjustifiable and morally bereft. And so what we have to do to control that narrative, first of all, is to control the official narrative coming out from officially established news organizations, places like CNN, to ensure that every information that they put out to their own viewer base within the West, who is of course where their material support comes from, as we described earlier on today, because any amount of changing of that narrative could undermine public support for continued military and financial support to the state of Israel in its essentially war of ethnic cleansing that we're seeing at the moment. So that's what they will do with the official narrative coming out of places like CNN, etc. 
when it comes to journalists on the ground in Gaza, they are giving us the very first-hand reporting of the absolute devastation that's being wrought by the Israeli military and what is engaging in, essentially, as I mentioned before, a campaign of ethnic cleansing, which you wouldn't see. None of us would be seeing this stuff were it not being reported on by guards and journalists on the ground, risking their lives so we can see their plight and what they are facing at the hands of the Israeli military. And if these clips that we're seeing, this footage that we're seeing on the ground in Gaza makes it to Western audiences, it doesn't matter how much control that Israel have over the official narrative. There is a level of human empathy that a lot of us can feel and can show with what is essentially devastation on the ground in Gaza at the moment. Right? It's difficult to view this footage and not feel an innate connection to the people and to feel sympathy for the people who are be having their lives completely uprooted and sometimes ended by a brutal military campaign that we're seeing at the moment. So targeting these journalists to stop this footage coming out is something that even if the, even if you thought you were doing something entirely morally justified, right, you know that your ability to do that is entirely is, could be entirely curtailed by a change of political allegiance from the West. So they're targeting journalists, in my mind, deliberately to ensure that people in the West have an incredibly sanitized view of what they're seeing from the conflict. I think a lot of people in the West who've given kind of de facto support for Israel for a very, very long time have done so out of ignorance, out of not seeing the reality of Palestinian lives, right? We remember the Tennessee Coates bit from the other day, talking about, well, I just went to the West Bank and saw the situation then, how could I not empathize with Palestine? And so there's many of these people, many, for many people, it's their first time seeing this reality and it's changing people's minds. We're seeing minds changed all the time. I was actually watching a debate between you and Kelvin McKenzie earlier, Michael, and there was a point at which you said to him um, that the history of Netanyahu is him bolstering Hamas. And he didn't believe you. He thought you were lying. He thought you were just making things up. And that's because the narrative has been entirely sanitized and sterilized to ensure continued Western support for what Israel is doing. And any amount of on-the-ground journalism from Palestinians completely undermines that and their ability to continue this information war. And it is telling the kind of people that they target and have always targeted. They targeted journalists during the Great March of Return as well. And it is very damaging. But at the end of the day, sometimes that is the unfortunate truth of what war looks like. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I take that. I mean, I, I think that was all very well put. I suppose the one bit I think we should be careful with is that this is the unfortunate, you know, obviously all war is horrible. All war is horrible. But I do think that Israel are trying to say, you know, all the civilians dying, all the journalists dying, this is just war. You know, if you, you you can either support everything we're doing or you can oppose war in general. We're not pacifists. Sure, we can kill 36 journalists. What, what do you think war looks like? And I do think we need to be clear that the, 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 the toll this conflict is taking on journalists is not normal. It is not just the inevitable cost of war. Jodie Ginsburg is president of the Committee to Protect Journalists. She said this to the BBC. The level of danger for journalists operating in Gaza right now is absolutely unprecedented. This is the most dangerous conflict for journalists that the Committee to Protect Journalists has ever documented. And we've been recording and documenting attacks against journalists for more than 30 years. 36 journalists have been killed in the past four weeks. And to put that in kind of context for you, last year we uh, documented 68 
journalists and media workers killed worldwide over the space of 12 months and 36 have died just in four weeks, just in Israel and Gaza. So she said this is the most dangerous conflict for journalists that the Committee to Protect Journalists has ever documented. And that organisation has been around for 30 years. So in 30 years, they have never seen a conflict which puts so many journalists in such danger. Right. And you think, oh, uh, last year, maybe there weren't so many wars going on. And that's why 68 journalists were killed over a whole year, whereas 36 have been killed in, in four weeks. There was a war in Ukraine. Right? Russia invaded Ukraine. There were lots of wars going on. But it's in this war that so, so many journalists are getting killed. And you have to ask, either that's because Israel is, is targeting journalists like no other country has done, or this is a more indiscriminate form of bombing than we've seen anywhere else in recent history. That does make sense. I mean, you've got two and a half million people in this very small bit of land and Israel is just bombing buildings left, right and center. So it's just, it's just appalling. And as I say, this is a situation where you've still got Western governments making excuses for Israel, not just making excuses for Israel, sending them military aid, right? Sending them military aid as they kill more journalists in four weeks than were killed in six months last year. Let's go on to our next story. The UK government has done its best to demonise protesters standing up for Palestine. But with a national march in London planned for Armistice Day on November the 11th, ministers have been ramping up their rhetoric. This was Home Secretary Suella Bravman on Sky. I think I've been pretty clear that these are hate marches. They are, we, I think, chanting of jihad on the streets of Britain in the 21st century is utterly despicable. You call them hate marches. Do you think everyone on these marches is hateful, as you put it? I think, as I say, if you've seen images of hundreds of people chanting jihad, being corralled... So everyone, so even on the fringes of these marches, rats. is hateful. Uh, chanting from the river to the sea. I don't think there's any other way but to call them hate marches. There are concerns that the Cenotaph could be targeted on Armistice Day. What action should be taken if that happens? If anyone were to vandalise the Cenotaph, uh, they must be put into a jail cell faster than their feet can touch the ground. So these are hate marches. And the journalists just like, oh, and, and people have said they might damage the Cenotaph. What are you going to do to them? She, she doesn't challenge the fact that, you know, up to half a million people have been marching against a genocide and she's dismissed them all as hate marches, right? Even people on the fringes, even people who might be walking past these demonstrations are taking part in a hate march. Right, the journalists, oh, what would you do if they damaged the cenotaph, right? Now, despite the route of the march going nowhere near the cenotaph and the remembrance service being on the Sunday, not the Saturday when the demonstration is going to be, ministers are now putting pressure on the Met Police to ban the demonstration for Palestine and against the bombardment of Gaza. But it's not just a single march that the government would like to outlaw. The Observer has reported this. Leaked documents show that the government is planning to change the definition of extremism to include anyone, quote, undermining the UK. So what does undermining the UK mean? Well, the Observer reports this proposed definition from the leaked papers. Extremism is the promotion or advancement of any ideology which aims to overturn or undermine the UK's system of parliamentary democracy, its institutions, and values. Now, that's a pretty vague definition. Who decides what the values are? Maybe some values deserve to be undermined, right? I can think of quite a few British values that we might want to undermine, supporting Israel when they bombard Gaza, for example. On Radio 4's Today programme, Michelle Hussein put that definition to the independent reviewer of terrorism legislation, Jonathan Hall, KC. 
Is that something that you could imagine being drafted into legislation in a coherent, useful way? Right. I mean, assuming what is reported in the Observer is correct, I think the answer is no. Um, I don't want to sneer, by the way, because there, it's legitimate to try and work out what might try and lead to terrorism at some stage in the future. But it does feel as if they sort of built an elephant in the dark. And from what's reported, it's insanely broad. It couldn't possibly lead to an offence. And to some extent, what you're seeing, it seems to me, is sort of the latest chapter in a, in a debate between some people who say it's really all about ideology and other people who say it's really about material conditions. And it's a bit of a left-right split. I mean, not, not completely, but you have those who say really ideology is a key thing. And then there are people like well, there's a report from Amnesty UK, which came out earlier this last week, which is saying, it was, you know, you should abolish the prevent duty, you should just improve health and education. So it's the sort of latest chapter in that. Um, and I say, I, I don't want to sneer, but this couldn't possibly lead to a, a, an offence. The proposals are the brainchild of levelling up Secretary Michael Gove, but he's reportedly coming up against pushback from his own department. One Whitehall source told The Observer this. The concern is that this is a crackdown on freedom of speech. The definition is too broad and will capture legitimate organisations and individuals. According to the internal departmental documents, those organisations could include the Muslim Council of Britain, Palestine Action and MEND, which stands for Muslim Engagement and Development. Now, there seems to be a common thread here. And the definition matters because it would change the basis of the government's prevent counterterrorism strategy. Since 2015, people working in education, healthcare, local authorities and even certain youth clubs have had a duty to report to the police anyone they think might be drawn into terrorism. The new proposal from Michael Gove's department would draw an even larger number of people into the scope of the duty. And the current prevent duty is controversial enough as it is. Earlier this month, Amnesty International UK released this report on it, citing a chilling effect on human rights. The organisation called for the prevent duty to be abolished. Um, here's how Amnesty described the impact of the prevent duty on individuals and institutions. Um, a person referred to prevent and their relatives can experience life-changing impacts, a loss of trust in state institutions, stress, anxiety, and other mental health consequences, unmanageable financial costs associated with challenging referrals, and worries over their privacy and data protection. Poor transparency surrounding prevent and barriers to redress compound these effects. Efforts by institutions and individuals to comply with prevent are leading to violations of people's rights to freedom of expression, freedom of thought, conscience and religion, freedom of peaceful assembly, and critically, the right to equality and non-discrimination. The proposed definition of extremism is only likely to increase that impact, of course. Um, Amnesty International UK's Racial Justice Director Ilyas Nagdi said this, This definition must not be accepted or implemented. The definition of extremism and its usage in counterterrorism policies, like counterterrorism strategy prevent, is already being applied so broadly it seeks to effectively hinder people from organising and mobilising. The proposed definition takes this even further and could criminalise any dissent. Uh, Martin Bright is editor-at-large for Index on Censorship. He said this about the new proposals. This is an unwarranted attack on freedom of expression and would potentially criminalise every student radical and revolutionary dissident. It has never been the British way to arrest people for fought crime. Um, Helena, I'm not sure if this is actually something the government is sort of really intending to push through or this is just sort of them raising the temperature when it comes to the demonstrations um, in favour of well, the Palestinian right not to be bombed in their homes. Um, but I suppose, how, how far do you think they're going to take this? It seems to me that there is 
a somewhat scary political consensus within the two major parties that the public upswell in opposition to the genocide of the Palestinians is is something to be dismissed, to be scared of, to be policed, to be cracked down on, as opposed to something that should be listened to. I mean, I think that they might be quite serious about this, given the kind of position that they're in and what they are, what they politically is in their interests, right? What this does is it dovetails nicely into Suella Braverman's speech that she gave about the failures of multiculturalism, right? About people coming here who, quote unquote, don't share our values and their desire to create a backlash against non-white people and people who are immigrants and people who are refugees and asylum seekers and exploiting this for political gain. Maybe they will implement it, maybe they won't. But it's clear, given the kind of groups that are going to be impacted by the wider net that's being cast, specifically around people who, quote unquote, don't share British values, is something that already is part of the kind of rhetoric that we're hearing, especially from the Home Office, given the kind of language that Braverman has used about people uh, from other countries up until this point. And this idea of unifying British values as a way in which that we can exclude people from other, I, I, it seems to be very nebulous in a way that which they can use that for political gains and exploit it for political ends. Now, there's always as well, this would also fit into a couple of pieces of conspiracy theory, which is a hallmark of um, almost fascism, really and truly, the way in which you try and silence dissent from the state-mandated ideology or principles. And first of all, remember the this was done by Michael Gove, who was one of, kind of the central figures when we had the Trojan horse scandal, where essentially there was a fake letter that was published uh, to, as a way of saying that there was a conspiracy, that there was uh, that we're going to try and change schools to be part of Islamic values, right? This Trojan horse thing, which turned out to all be essentially nonsense. That was Michael Gove that helped uh, create the situation that spread that rumor quite a lot. Another conspiracy theory that people get caught up in is one of cultural Marxism, which is specifically something that Swella Bravmans has referenced herself. Other Tory MPs have referenced cultural Marxism, which to remind people who don't know, is an overarching anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that there are... Um, actors, uh, unscrupulous actors trying to undermine va the values of the West, quote unquote, through immigration. So all of that, what they've said so far, neatly fits into a bunch of things that has already been said by Swilla Bravman about multiculturalism and about cultural Marxism. So that is quite worrying to me, given what they've said previously. Now, the second half of what they were talking about was undermining institutions in this country. Now, anyone who's paid any attention to politics over the last 13 years knows that our institutions are failing. They've continually failed. And the people who stand to gain from the, our institutions staying as they are, usually the people from the upper classes, the rich people, the people with connections, people from the Conservative Party and to members of our political class from other parties as well. Despite their lack of skill, their lack of talent, they've continually failed upwards. Trust in politicians is at an all-time low, as well as trust in our institutions more broadly, which has led to the point at which that the people who should be having a control over the narrative are suddenly, all over the country, are completely losing it. And so this desire to be more authoritarian is a way of creating more control in a time of societal entropy that is destabilizing plenty of what was things that these people would cling to for a very, very long time. It's why we see restricting protest 
whether it be environmental, right? 45 uh, people have been referred to prevent since it started for environmental activism, no less, when that is, of course, a failure of the British government to deal properly with the climate crisis, trying to restrict protests for people in terms of what we're seeing regarding Palestine, failing to toe the line on Western geopolitical policy, like what's rote policy, which we sh- which apparently should all believe in when it clearly leads to terrible ends uh, on a utilitarian basis. And one big institution that, they, that is being on, that is failing and that they don't want to undermine, don't want us to undermine, sorry, is neoliberal capitalism itself, right? They've already tried to restrict this further. It was last year they changed their legislation so that you couldn't talk about anti-capitalism in schools, Right, and loads of these things are failures of capitalism as well. The entrenchment of power, the failure on climate change, uh, the the Western values of capitalism—all of these things are just continually failing, and everybody can see that they're failing. So, in a desperate attempt to be able to corral the population behind a failed ideology, they have to ban dissent. They have to curtail any amount of dissent in these failing institutions that we're seeing at the moment. So, this is—I mean undermining British parliamentary democracy is something that anarchists and Marxists would want to do, right? What do you think a vanguard party is for in Leninist theory, for example? So loads of different, a huge spread of different um, ideas could essentially become dissident ideas and essentially turning it into a, a kind of thought crime, which is very scary to think of because this is the state that's doing it. This isn't some kind of individual actor in implementing whether people can say things or not. This is the state itself banning certain kinds of speech, which is the definition of free speech violations. I'd just like to finish off my point here in that the government's definitions are failed by themselves. They do not meet their own definitions of what is within British values, because they include in British values the right of the individual, which one surely one of the things that the right of the individual must encompass is freedom of thought and freedom of expression and freedom of speech, which they are failing on with their own piece of legislation here. And one other thing they talk about in terms of British values is anything that will be permissive or lead to a rise in hate crime. I don't know about anybody else. Has anyone looked at the studies or the statistics for the rise in hate crime against trans people right now? This is a direct result of government policy and government rhetoric and the values that are being held are establishment political and media class. So even by their own definitions, they would be counted as extremists. And I believe fundamentally that they are. I think that's very well put. And I also find it, you know, you know like they're saying we need to class as extremists anyone who wants to undermine a parliamentary system. No, I used to be like a bit of an anarchist. We used to want to undermine the parliamentary system. I'm more at peace with it now. Um, but you know, people would always sort of like say, "Oh, who's going to? Who's the? Who's the undercover cop?" And then I'd always say, "I don't. I don't know if they're that scared of us, to be honest." Um, and I, I don't think the government do need to be particularly scared of the anarchist scene. But so it does seem a little bit over the top to 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 try and um, ban them from speaking out, which to me makes it seem like this is more directed at things such as the the movement against the bombardment of 2.5 million people in Gaza, because that is a movement that actually is going to be very powerful and very difficult to um, control. You know, it, it would be better for the government if everyone who was completely outraged by their support of Israel felt too scared to go out and talk about it. Currently, they don't. Currently, lots and lots of people are going out every weekend. They would like to change that. I think it would be very difficult to change that. George Osborne and Ed Ball's new podcast is always a pretty cosy affair. We mostly get to hear the architect of austerity and the then Labour shadow chancellor who barely opposed that deadly programme, Charmily launder each other's reputations. But every now and again, one of them says something interesting, revealing the hidden mechanisms of British political power. 
Here's a little anecdote from George Osborne on a recent episode. And the only time she ever directly interfered in politics, I think I can also tell this story, was I was at a state dinner and she came up to me and she said, the chief of the defence staff is unable to answer my question. He told me to go and speak to the defence secretary. I went to see the defence secretary and he told me to come and speak to you. So I'm asking you, you're not going to close, are you, the Highland bagpipe school of the British Army. I was like, of course not, Your Majesty. So the next day I get into the Treasury. I said, is there like, is there a sort of bagpipe school? And for God's sake, tell me we're not closing it down. And uh, the Treasury didn't know, or my private office didn't know immediately, and they scurried on. They said, yes, apparently there's a kind of Highland music school as part of the army bands, and we are making some cuts to those. And I said, well, we're not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I immediately sent a message back to the palace that... Uh, she could be reassured that the uh, the pipers of the British Army would remain well-trained. Remember, during austerity, essential services across the country were shut down, right? If that screwed teenagers or single-parent families or the disabled, that didn't matter. But if it annoyed the Queen, well, that's a different story. That's all it took. All it took was the Queen to say, oh, I don't want you to shut that service, and it survived. Now, to pick up on just one area where the Queen's interventions might have been more helpful, let's look at youth services across England and Wales. Youth services saw their budgets slashed by almost a billion pounds between 2011 and 2019. According to research by the YMCA in 2011, the budget allocation for youth services was £1.4 billion eight years later, and it had fallen to just over £400 million. So that's a real terms drop of 70%. Now, as you can imagine, those cuts led to the loss of 4,500 youth work jobs and the closure of 760 youth clubs. And they also had a major impact on youth crime. In a recent report on youth services, funding and crime amongst young people, the National Youth Agency cited these findings. Between 2010 and 2019, almost a quarter of youth centres in London closed against a backdrop of 71% um, cut in youth service expenditure in the city. And residents' crime participation for young people aged 10 to 15 increased by 10%. Incidents of crime rose by 8% for those aged 10 to 15. This is driven by drug crimes. A small incident, 2% of violence crimes happening near youth centres also increase after closures. Um, and youth centre closures impacted youth centre attendance after closures in London. Young people were 14% less likely to attend any youth centre in the city. Um, aside from being socially damaging and ruining young people's lives, Osborne's cuts to youth services weren't even good economics. According to a 2009 Audit Commission report, each young person in the criminal justice system cost the taxpayer over £200,000 by the time they're 16, but supporting a kid to stay out of trouble costs less than £50,000. Um, Helena, I suppose... I'm not sure what's grosser there, sort of George Osborne sort of chuckling along, saying, oh yes, we cut all of these essential services, but then the Queen didn't want us to cut the bagpipe school, so we didn't cut the bagpipe school. Or, or Ed Balls laughing along. You know, Ed Balls, who was supposed to, you know, he was the opposition. He was supposed to be, he should have said at that point, you know, that's disgusting, George. You know, there were many times in Parliament when I was saying you shouldn't shut this youth centre or you shouldn't shut that Shore Start centre and because of the social consequences it would have, have. You didn't listen to me, but you listened to the Queen because she likes bagpipe music, right? But that, that just seems so alien to them. It's just, I, I find how out of touch they are, I mean, offensive, frankly. 
Oh yeah, I mean Ed Balls has always been a pathetic individual. Like they, he when he was Shadow Chancellor, he fully accepted the narrative of austerity. And I guess that narrative just kind of has broken down now, and that we all realised it was never about balancing the books. It was always an ideological project where the upper classes of this country saw fit to try and completely remove all state provision for anybody who they didn't feel was deserving, i.e. anybody not from their social class. Uh, and so they were very happy to be able to change uh, and to undermine the actual stated goal of austerity, these efficiency savings, which is, of course, you know, if you're going to make efficiency savings, maybe the bagpipe school might be somewhere that you'd start. Not that I wanted to get cut. Anyway, I didn't want any cuts. But this move towards the, the big society they were talking about, it was always a massive lie. And we know that it's a lie. And it was obviously bad economics in terms of um, the false economy that it created, right? We now have a very unproductive society because we've been so immiserated by falling living standards, all because of the failures of austerity and supply side labour market policy. And the result is terrifying, right? It's Ed Balls Charlie laughing along with George Osborne. When we have the stats, we know that 330,000 people up to uh, excess deaths because of austerity. To put that in context, 300,000 people died in EDR means purges. So well done, George. You're definitely high on the leaderboard in terms of in that regard. And this, this lack of empathy towards these kind of people is endemic to the ideological, project of the ideological project of austerity. And just to put that into further perspective on how it was completely ideological and didn't actually fulfill its remit, in that the debt to GDP ratio continued to increase every year that he was chancellor. They never got the deficit under control like they told us that they would. They just completely hamstrung our economy forever. But they were very happy to continue quantitative easing and pump huge amounts of state money into the pockets of the financial sector so that we could get growth at least somewhere, even if it wasn't growth in terms of money in the pockets of working people in this country. And so whether it's the Queen or whether it's the financial sector in London that George Osborne is great friends with, there was always going to be exceptions to the rule when it came to austerity. Absolutely. Um, a message from us. Everything on this show and Navarra Media as a whole is funded by the regular supporters who donate to us on our website each and every month. But a question to you. Can you guess what the average donation is. Are we like other media outlets that receive massive funding from the rich? Well, I'll tell you the reality. So far this year, the average monthly donation we've received is just £6.31. So we really mean it when we say we are people-powered because we're powered by our audience, by ordinary working people like all of you watching now. So thank you if you're a regular supporter. And if you're not yet, then please do consider heading to our website. That's navaramedia.com slash support. Whether it's one pound or two pounds or one hour's wage per month, it keeps this show going. That link is in the description below. We've got another clip for you. So uh, that clip we just showed you was just one example of how Osborne and Ball sit down and freely admit some of the distasteful realities of British politics. There was another a few weeks back that's worth talking about though. And it was also about someone powerful but someone far more powerful than the Queen. By the time I got to the top of British politics, uh, we had to go and see Rupert Murdoch rather than the other way around. Of course, news that uh, Rupert Murdoch has just stepped down as chairman of what news kind of in inadvert commas stepped down. He's I mean, chairman has, emeritus. Has, has he really stepped down? This really? is uh, Brian Cox style really? stepping down. Um, but, you know, it was a very important to try and get the Murdoch newspapers, which had backed Labour for many, many years to support us. And David Cameron and I would go and speak to him and speak to members of his family. Mm. On one occasion, we were in his uh, swimming pool. Um, if this is not confirming too many cliches about the uh, closeness you of politics. You were in Rupert Murdoch's swimming pool? In Rupert Murdoch's swimming pool. And um, one, of the, one of the young Cameron children 
very young Cameron children, did a little poo in the pool. And thankfully, Rupert hadn't seen it. And um, Dave and I looked at each other and said, this is this is our election chance, it's going down the drain. And so, or not going down the drain, it was going, floating, was it? was floating, so we just had to pick it up and throw it away. Oh, well. And there we go. And, and I have never been in Rupert Murdoch's swimming pool. What can I say? What can I say? Well, that's that's why you lost. And for the record, whose hand scooped it out? Well, the Cameron Osborne partnership was incredibly tight, and we keep those things secret. Oh, come on! Was it <laughs> Cameron, was it Cameron's Cameron, dainty hand? Cameron knew how to shovel his own shit. Oh God, I've got a little bit of sick in my mouth, and it's not because of the talk of poo. Right? It's because of looking at those smug faces as they discussed how you know they all know it. Ed Balls knows it, how much you have to cozy up to the Murdochs. Just imagine oh, George Osborne, David Cameron in, in, in Rupert Murdoch's pool with all of their family trying to encourage him to give them active support at the next general election. That's not democracy. That's not democracy. Um, Helena, what did you make of, 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 of that particular clip, which I found especially nauseating? And it just shows that, you know, we were talking earlier about undermining British democracy and they just show what democracy, like what democracy do we have when a singular poo in a Murdoch pool could potentially undermine the potential, which, which is going to be the next government? Because that's not a democracy. That's not a democracy that we live in. Right? Another hilarious story was one we had a few months back of Sebastian Payne being a bo boarding at Jacob Rees-Mogg's house, just appearing downstairs in his dressing gown, showing that it's really not a political class and a media class that holds them to account. It's a political class and a media class who sleep in the same bed. And we've all seen already what happens when you try and challenge what the media do. They destroy you, like they destroyed Jeremy Corbyn from 2015 to 2019, because he refused to play their game. And at this point, I get loads of people, right? I do a lot of commentary on things like whether or not you should be voting for the Labour Party. And they say um, the Labour Party's failure to have a proper alternative to Conservatives. And the response I always hear is, oh, well, you can't do anything too radical, otherwise the media will attack you. And I'm like, okay, you're just going to let the media choose the policy? Why have elections anymore? Just let Rupert Murdoch anoint a new a new Prime Minister, a new all-powerful politician, and just get rid of the sham already. Because <laughs> at this point, if a singular pool in a Murdoch pool can change the entire election, then our democracy is, all, is only in name at this point. Let's Let's go to our final story. Home Secretary Suella Braverman likes nothing more than finding new political scapegoats for years of Tory failure. She's blamed everyone from asylum seekers to the so-called tofu-eating wokarati for the government's abysmal record. Now she's landed on a new target with the FT's Whitehall editor posting this on social media. Suella Braverman is pushing to restrict tents for rough sleepers. Plans include a new civil offence to deter charities from giving tents to homeless people if their use could cause a nuisance. Now, Braverman quickly jumped online to add some detail um, to that report, and she said this, The British people are compassionate. We will always support those who are genuinely homeless, but we cannot allow our streets to be taken over by rows of tents occupied by people, many of them from abroad, living on the streets as a lifestyle choice. God, there are so many dog whistles in that sentence. It's unbelievable. Um, it's not funny, obviously. It's very depressing and miserable, but just Suella Bradman, you can just imagine, oh, wow, maybe I could, um, could, 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 we, could we add some of them a foreign? I think there's space in the tweet for that, isn't there? Um, it, it is an interesting take on, on homelessness, this idea that it's a lifestyle choice, not least of all, because for some reason, more people seem to choose that lifestyle whenever the Tories are in charge. 
Now, every year since 2010, the government has done a snapshot of rough sleepers in England, counting the number sleeping rough in the country on a single autumn night. And it shows that rough sleeping steadily climbed under the last 13 years of Tory rule. Now, the numbers are fairly small on this chart, but if you squint, you can see that in 2010, there were fewer than 2,000 rough sleepers on the snapshot night. But by 2017, that figure had risen to almost 5,000. Now, the figures dropped during the pandemic because efforts were made to get people off the streets and into hotels. But even then, the number of rough sleepers never fell back to the level in 2010. Those figures relate to rough sleeping and they're a conservative measure. But there's also a wider issue of homelessness with 105,000 families in temporary accommodation across England. And it isn't just this latest Tory government that's caused a surge in homelessness. Between 1984 and 1992, homelessness more than doubled. Now, those were the peak Thatcher years, with a 1989 study by the Salvation Army finding 75,000 homeless people in London alone. Helena, what is it about Tory governments that make more people decide the lifestyle of being street homelessness is an attractive one? I mean, what this is, is a really stark example of cultural neoliberalism, this individualization of all problems, how we can always try and break down every problem and ignore broader systems, broader structures, broader ways in which that we look at things like the economy, things like our relationships between one another, that everything can be distilled down to individual choices, right? So much so than when we have clear evidence of the material nature of what happens during a housing crisis, more people become homeless. It's really not a difficult concept to wrap your brain around, but we individualize a problem. So it's like, well, if you're homeless, that's your fault. That's something that you've done. You must have chosen this lifestyle choice. It's such a, a completely ridiculous thing to say that someone would ever choose to be homeless. No one would choose to be homeless. It's a, They are really are the, some of the most depressed people under capitalism because they get completely left behind when they don't have somewhere like a home to go to. Right, And what's interesting as well is on top of this, Wella Braffman talks about all the money that they're going to be giving to local authorities to help deal with the, the, the homelessness crisis. And this is a lie. This isn't true. There was an article that was in The Guardian a few days ago talking about how local authorities are asking for 100 million extra pounds to be able to deal with what is essentially going to be a homelessness catastrophe as continued austerity, continued uh, lack of funds for councils has meant that in conjunction with this rise in homelessness, their homelessness provision has completely collapsed. It's, they don't have enough money to be able to do it in the first place. And now we're seeing a massive rise in homelessness. They can't deal with that either. And of course, that's down road from the neoliberal policy that they've taken for the last 13 years that's got to this point. This way housing crisis gets exacerbated by our obsession with the inalienable you know, property rights that undermine you know, neoliberal ca liberal capitalism, which is so strong in the UK that we don't build any more houses, we don't build any infrastructure, we don't deal with increasing population at all because of this innate this kind of reverence towards property rights, which has meant that the housing crisis has been exacerbated because of our lack of supply and because of our failure to deal with the fact that so much of our country is just empty housing, more than the number of homeless people, for example. And that's how all this culture and neoliberalism spreads into every facet of government policy, which leads us to ridiculous sentences like the lifestyle choice of homelessness, which is a barbaric in, uh, that any society would look at. Another thing that Braverman did 
was compare the, the homelessness problem we have here with the homelessness problem that there is in places like San Francisco and Los Angeles. Trying to, I think, dog whistle to our audience that you can't be like the liberal cities because the liberal cities are the ones which have all of the homelessness problems. And I'm like, yeah, but liberal with a capital L. It's liberal capitalism that's the problem here, right? Whilst you may look at places like San Francisco and LA and see them being a lot more kind of you know, culturally progressive in terms, but they're really, they're truly very liberal, very rich areas. They don't want homeless people near them. Right? They don't want homeless as shelters or social housing being built. So it's they suffer the same problem that we do in terms of a housing crisis, in terms of policy. And yet she tries to construe this as somehow that woke, cult, woke cities are causing hopeless. It's a very kind of bizarre position that she's taken here. When, of course, you know, extra funding for homeless shelters or policing homelessness does not work. Every study will tell you homelessness shelters and continued policing of homeless neighborhoods does not work. It just does not work. The only solution to homelessness is a housing first policy. It's why Finland is one of the only countries in Europe that has got its homelessness rates falling because they understand that some of the things that lead to homelessness are things like addiction problems, things like family breakdown, which get resolved much easier if you have stable housing. These things do not get resolved in the difficult nature of homeless shelters, which have not, which do not in any way help give people the solid and stable existence to be able to deal with the problems that lead to cyclical homelessness in the first place. I would like to finish off this last point by pointing out that when interviewed on the news agents, Jeremy Corbyn said, was asked by Lewis Goodall, what would be the first thing that you would do were you to become prime minister? And his response was that today homelessness ends. No one will ever sleep rough again. The state will provide, we will end homelessness. And to all of the liberal journalists who undermined him and led us to the government that we have today, all I can have to say is that you've got what you wanted. Plenty of liberal journalists out here are castigating Swilla Braverman for the things that she's saying at the moment and the kind of rhetoric that she's pulling, which is of course disgusting. But at the end of the day, these people helped undermine the opposition to this, who would have ended homelessness immediately, would have gone into the process of ending homelessness. Uh, and it is incredibly depressing to think what we could have had. It's, it's depressing and it's a very serious topic, but there is just one uh, dark joke that I read in the comment section that I do have to read to you. Owen Fender says, Suella Braverman misheard someone asking for rent control which I think is very clever. Um, thank you, Helena, for joining me tonight. It's been a pleasure. I mean, obviously, I said, I wish there were better circumstances to join you, but I do appreciate the opportunity as always. And um, thank you all watching for tuning in. This show will be back again tomorrow from 6pm for now. You've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.